Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm on site in Las Vegas with uh, Dr. Nelson. We have a kind of a special episode for you. And I think you know who Mike is, but we'll just let, you know, do our usual intros. Hey, it's Dr. Mike Nelson. And yep, we are here out in Vegas for the ISSN conference that we just finished up. It was fun. It's always fun to do this sort of thing on site. Um, I think we're just going to run down some of the cool stuff that we saw. Uh, and Mike takes good notes during the lectures and whatnot, so that's where we're going to start. Like, you know, what stood out from lectures, posters, the expo, just to kind of give you a flavor uh, of what we saw here. So uh, I don't know if you want to do this chronologically or however you want to do it. Yeah, so you can talk about your study that you did since you were one of the presenters on day one and kicked it off. Oh, I, did, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> Yeah, we did. Uh, we just shared sort of a collection of the last five or six years of research with a focus on gender differences, with the idea that women might actually be getting more out of a cup of coffee than men. Uh, this is very exploratory, and we're not sure this is true. But in our data, women got more alert, even when you correct for their body weight. In fact, that was one of the points of the talk. Is I, my bias is that you? I think you need to both give absolute doses and relative doses. And by that, I just mean if you and a female friend uh, go work out and you swing by Starbucks and you buy a grande coffee, uh, she's not going to titrate her ingestion of that coffee to be like, let's say three quarters of yours, right? Because she weighs three quarters of what you weigh. You're going to drink the damn coffee. Um, So the other way that researchers do this to maximize what's called internal validity or, you know, comparisons and control is to give it a very precise number of milligrams per kilo of body weight. So the way we do it, it, the best attempt that I've been been able to come up with students is give them the, the cup of coffee. But then you can correct statistically after the fact. So we adjust for body mass after the fact. That way we can do comparisons both with the big cup of coffee uh, and then for people who might say, but that's ridiculous. Of course the girl's getting a higher dose for her size. Okay, well then we corrected for that too. And so we did alertness and um, epinephrine responses. And both of those things had trends or full-on statistical significance with the women getting – Getting more out of a cup of coffee. Uh, it's important to note, though, that in the gym, performance-wise, we didn't really see that so much. And other researchers haven't seen really that as much either. Uh, there was a paper that just came out this year in MedSize Sports Exercise from Skinner and colleagues basically saying that women get a similar ergogenic effect, even though they get higher caffeine levels um, after ingesting. Uh, so – that was one, and then there was another one too. Uh, another one of my students actually did some work with different kinds of accelerometers like Fitbit or some of the old school Omron pedometers and basically looking to see if, if we could detect movement patterns. Like if people consume more coffee, does that correlate with more movement? 
And we actually did not see that in students, but we're on a campus where a lot of the students are team athletes. So I think when they're dictated their movement patterns by classes coming and going or coaches barking at them, coffee really wasn't enough to show up as something. That's in contrast to some studies with middle-aged women, though, in Australia from a couple of years ago where they did see differences. But again, they're not being barked at by coaches yeah. and that kind of stuff. Anyway, so are you going to talk about that at all? Or? <laughs> no, I was going to say you also saw a difference in upper body versus lower body exercise performance with coffee, correct? Yeah, that's some stuff from a couple of years ago. In fact, we might have even mentioned it on the show in the past, but um, it's just curious, right? It's a curious thing that we have routinely seen more benefit, more um, elevation in bar speed and power output and whatnot with upper body versus lower body movements. And I'm glad I posed to the audience, hey, anybody got any ideas for why we're seeing this? And I got some interesting comments about that. Like, uh, Mike Greenwood said, well, I, I think you're just – you don't see the ergogenesis in the lower body to the same extent, almost with regardless of the intervention and you know stuff like that. So um, still fishing around for reasons why that happens. It's very curious though. But yeah, and that was the opening uh, session. But after that, I mean what else did you see, Mike? Um, so Dr. Tartar did a really good talk about sleep, uh, which I thought was interesting since her background is more on the neurobiology side. And, of course, people listening to this are like, oh, sleep, yes, we need to sleep more. And, yes, of course, you do. Um, I wrote a note that for clients, if I want them to get to sleep more, I'm probably going to ask them to try to do less. So trying to pull stuff out of their schedule if they can. We know the glymphatic system for sleep is kind of like, I tell clients, it's like the, uh, the car wash for your little neurons. They get cleaned out each night. Uh, and she also mentioned attention is a very expensive brain process. And I think that's something that I know that I personally just forget because we, we tend to think that the ability to pay attention is a, it's a thing we should be able to do all the time, but that's actually a very expensive brain process. I know personally, I've noticed that six hours of very hardcore attentive stuff is about the max I can do if I want to do it day in and day out. You know, I can stretch that a little bit, but in terms of like productivity, I think it definitely drops. Something else she thought was really interesting is that they would teach a skill one day, they would sleep, and when they repeated that task again, but the skill was a little bit different, uh, it kind of messed with the learning effect. And she didn't go into a lot of details on that, but the thought being you want to do a skill, sleep, and then do that exact same skill again the next day. So I thought for lifters, I'm thinking maybe like Olympic weightlifting, if you're working on a snatch, maybe you take a period of time where you hit that in your warm-ups every day to try to practice and consolidate that skill set. And we know that uh, REM sleep especially is good for motor learning. There's some very cool rat studies and done on mazes with that. Um, if you don't sleep enough, decrease in ATP production, decrease in AM cortisol, Right, so when you wake up in the morning, you actually want cortisol to be higher at that point. Uh, decrease in motivation and action as soon as you have sleep research, or sorry, sleep restriction. Uh, another thing called soporific. Soporific. <laughs> I can't even read my own friggin' handwriting. It's bad. <laughs> what happens at the end of like day three. Uh, signals, what makes you sleepy, uh, things of that nature. And I read this research before too that 
Uh, everyone talks about the influence of light, which we definitely know is a massive influence. Um, but there's some really cool research showing that, and she mentioned this too, temperature may be, for inducing sleep, maybe as powerful or maybe even more powerful than light. So what I did is I recently got something called the chili pad. And it's a thing that you put under your bed that's heated by water. And the new one, you can program how you want the temperature to drop. So basically what you're doing is you could program a sleep induction and then program it to warm up in the morning as a way to wake you up. So the downside with using air temp is that, one, it's going to be hard to program your AC that way. Two, you usually have covers on. And if you think about the conductivity of water, it's much, much higher than air. So now I can have something that's maybe different than my wife, and I'm going to play around with that. I should get it in a couple of weeks and see if that has an effect on sleep timing. And then I'm also super curious if, can I drive myself to be as cold at night just before I start to shiver? Does that have any effect on resting RMR, sleep quality, sleep depth, uh, things of that nature? So, if Can we clarify just for a minute? So yeah. what would be the recommendation for listeners? They want to be cool in order to get drowsy and then warm to wake up? Yeah, in essence, you want the temperature to drop. So a practical method is by using a hot bath, or I've even seen people use cold, right? Because when you step out, now you have also this massive temperature differential, and the temp differential also from your core to your extremities is going to be different. So one thing I've done with clients is I'm like, okay, take a very hot Epsom salt bath at night, very minimal lighting, Get in there, get the water as hot as you can. Don't be an idiot. Don't burn yourself. Once you get accustomed to that water temp, I'll even have turn it on a little bit more and see if you can get it a little bit hotter. Get as much of your body in the fluid as you can, the water. And then when you come out, ideally your air temp would be below 70. Now you've got a massive differential temp difference that you're building up, and that'll also make you a little bit more sleepy. Sounds cool. Yeah. Okay. Um was that it for the sleep talk? Uh, yeah, that was pretty much it for a sleep. Last uh, thing that may be useful is that if you take a nap, make it 20 minutes or less. Or if you need more sleep, make the nap at around 90 minutes. So we know that the roll through all the sleep cycles is around 90 minutes. So if you have 20 or less, you're kind of staying out of that so you don't wake up half asleep. And if you go 90, it'll hopefully allow you to complete one full cycle so that you don't kind of wake up in the middle of your deep sleep and you're super groggy and don't know where you're at. For what it's worth, we're going to invite some of these people uh, in future months uh, to be on the show so we can just you know dig into this sort of stuff individually with them so you don't have to you know just get it this kind of secondhand. Although I think, yeah, that, that's very cool stuff. What stood out with the, a lot of the, the attention stuff at least was – looking at it like it's energetically expensive yes. i mean why do people meditate because it's hard like yeah. I, I challenge anybody who's listening to this to focus on your breath and see how long you can do that like feel the air rush into your nostrils the back of your throat coming back out the rise or fall of your chest or belly and just that because i can almost guarantee you can't do that for very long and it was a neat explanation especially without practice, right? But mm -hmm. this is energetically expensive. Just like running hard is more energetically expensive than jogging lightly, right? So that was cool. Yeah, 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 I thought that was good. Uh, another talk that came down the pike, uh, this was all on day one, in fact. It was sort of a symposium. 
uh, was on the gut microbiome. And uh, listeners know that this is something that we've been predicting for the past couple of years is going to continue to get attention. And that was really reinforced. I mean, I actually saw a talk later, a secondary talk, not the one I'm about to discuss, but they were showing the number of uh, citations specifically for microbiome related stuff. And they are skyrocketing in the last 10 years. Um, but it was Sarah Campbell, and we're going to try to ask her to come on the show as well, um, sleep, uh, a gut microbiome researcher. Uh, and one of the things that she really emphasized is something that we've talked about. It's been on Science Friday and other kinds of legitimate you know, public media, but that when you take uh, probiotics, for example, it, you're not rewriting the populations of bacteria in your gut. Um, one of the things that she talked about was keystone populations like they were looking at the crosstalk because that's really what you're trying to affect right is the what you've got your populations of several different bacteria they're all they're sort of genetically set in a way and even if you take a, a probiotic uh to your point mike you you layer something on top of those and you hope to get the conversation going with with your natural i mean short of having all of your feces killed all the bacteria that is with antibiotics or having a fecal transplant the most you can hope for is to layer something on top of that and hope that the probiotics that you consume have a conversation with your microbiome right i mean anything else out of that from you yeah, I thought that was good. The other part I had is that higher fiber diet in general will increase gut health and the bugs that are there. Now, again, that study was done in people who are generally healthy. Obviously, if you've got some gut issues, you know, higher fiber could potentially make it worse. But if you don't have any gut issues, it's, it's helpful. Uh, I guess Ponzer has a new study out that I haven't found yet. She said it was four days old that the gut can limit the amount of calories that are absorbed, especially, I think, during endurance exercise. So I'm going to pull that. Uh, researchers may be familiar with his work on the constrained energy hypothesis. So looking at, oh, uh, people always assume that, oh, if I get 10,000 steps, I'm good. And then if I go from 10,000 to 15,000, I'm that much better. But it's not a linear response. You know, Once you kind of get up past that 10, 12,000 mark, it really starts to level off. So other things downregulate, is that what you're saying? Yeah, you just start becoming super efficient at doing it, right? So the amount of calories that you're expending is this uh, kind of curve where it comes up and then it reaches this kind of flat line. So people think that, oh, if I bring my, my steps from 10,000 to 18,000, wow, that's going to be amazing. And yeah, you're going to burn a few more calories but it, it very much, you're starting to approach that flat part of the curve where you're not getting that many total more calories that are actually being burned. So bang for the buck for fat loss. Like, yeah, don't just keep... Returns. Diminishing yeah. returns. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah. You know, another thing when uh, Mike mentioned fiber, she pointed out specifically, and I don't remember if this was at the podium or in a conversation later, but that um, inulin, like from chicory root fiber, yeah. seems to be an ideal substrate to feed in fact she was saying that prebiotics right like feeding your existing bugs might be the better approach in, in her estimation was that right yeah that was her hypothesis too and it's probably other data on it but it it kind of makes sense to your point that if probiotics tend to have a very limited half-life you may get some benefit while they're there they definitely don't seem to colonize as far as any of the data we have so feeding the little buggers you have now is probably a better way for health 
again, we're talking about generally healthy populations for that. And I did walk away with something else too. What what did she say? It was something like two or three weeks is sort of a washout when you stop your yeah, two like four ish weeks. Yeah, once you stop your probiotic, that's probably your washout period for that. Um, I know I've talked to some other probiotic companies, especially some of the spore forming companies, who say that they may be able to recolonize and it may stay longer, but there's just really not much data in that area. Yeah. In fact, I, I actually pressed uh, Dr. Campbell, Sarah, uh, later. I said, what what percent of the pie, what proportion, if we're talking about gut, the microbiome, if we're talking about whether it's mental or physical performance, would you venture a guess as to what percentage of the game your gut might be? Because if you read old research, for example, on obesity, your gut microbiome predicts obesity more than your genes. And it's just kind of – those sort of comments are always kind of uh, startling. Uh, And, of course, you know, being the consummate researcher, she's full of caveats, and she couldn't put a number on it. But that's one of my burning questions that maybe when we get her on the show, hopefully we can – we can ask her like hormones, diet, sleep, all these different things. And of course they're interconnected, but how big of a role, what piece of the pie is your gut biome for, for a couple of different things, right? So I'm very curious about that because I think that's a, that's a hard number or at least a range that we can work from. Like if, if we're talking about what might be four to six percent of the total picture, Eh, I hate to say it, but meh, yeah, yeah. meh. Yeah. You know, so. And one of the parts she had, too, is a rat study where they used antibiotics to wipe out their gut, and they used some other uh, mice, I don't know if it was mice or rats, that really didn't have any little buggers in their gut. And they did show that that was ergolytic, meaning it impaired exercise performance. And I thought that was super interesting because that's, at face value, that's not something I would have guessed that it would have been that uh, profound. But when you think about it, obviously it makes makes sense. And then uh, we've had Dr. Michael Ruscio on Iron Radio before. So people can go back and listen to those episodes for more on the kind of pathologies and if you've got kind of digestion issues, kind of what you could do. Okay, yeah, that's cool stuff. And it's definitely more impactful than I would have thought as far as certain performance markers and how you really rely on those the bugs right in your colon in your large intestines um what about the creatine talk any any thoughts or details you have yeah it was from dr eric rawson and he did a really good job i thought and you know at first blush people are like oh creatine blah 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 it's so boring we've heard everything about it but he did a really nice overview went into some of the history what I liked about his talk was he you know, is a lifter and he was a personal trainer for over a decade before he actually got into research, which I always find interesting because those people tend to be hardcore research but still are on the practical side and are very good at translating it. He did a good job looking at the history. So creatine was found in beef all the way back to 1832, was first isolated. Uh, there was a book on creatine, just that, in 1928 that had like 500 references in it. And obviously, we didn't learn a lot more about it till you know, biopsy, right? So Bergstrom Needle is 1962. And supplement, I mean, most people listening to this are probably aware, was Roger Harris with the original study in 1992 on creatine supplementation. And 99% of the research is on creatine monohydrate version, 
There's just really not much good data on the other versions. Standard stuff people have probably heard, you can do 20 grams per day for five days to reach saturation, or three to five grams for about 30 days. He talked about some uh, increases in brain creatine. Uh, the studies I've seen on that, they use 20 grams a day for five days. And he said the research is really all across the board. We don't know if that's trying to get it past the blood-brain barrier or what's going on with that. But I think especially for some of the other research I've looked at with uh, TBI, so traumatic brain injury, there's some mouse data showing that high-dose creatine, it may be helpful from a prophylactic standpoint, where they whacked one group of mice on the head, did not uh, give them creatine. The other group got creatine, whacked them on the head also. So it may be protective uh, for that. But in humans, there's just not a whole lot of data, partially because you're not going to take humans and whack them on the head. In terms of muscle, he said average about 8% increase in strength, 14% increase in muscular endurance, mostly beneficial for exercise less than 30 seconds of intense exercise. And people listening may be like, oh, 8% increase in strength, nah. But if you think about it, that's pretty damn significant. Right, so if I said, hey, your deadlift is 400 pounds, and I can add, what's 8%, 32 pounds to your 1RM deadlift, let's say, in five days if I just load you on creatine, woo, hell yeah, sign me up for that. <laughs> yeah, and I think the key with that is in five freaking days. Yeah. Like this is an acute, almost immediate effect. This isn't, oh, I put 32 pounds on my deadlift this year. Yeah. This is this month. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think when you put it in those types of terms, it's like, ooh, that is that is significant. In fact, my old advisor, Pete Lemon, was a fan of the term uh, super training effect, right? So sure. if you are moving 8% more low, that extra 32 pounds in your deadlift, every time you go in the gym, yeah. that's going to, I mean, presumably lead to real gains. Yeah, yeah, and he presented some studies showing uh, the branch had one 2003 lean body mass gain of 2.2 pounds. Uh, Chili Beck had one 2017 uh, increase in lean body mass of 1.4 kilograms. I don't remember the exact length on those studies, but I think it was around eight weeks, maybe 12 weeks at the most. So pretty significant for, I always tell athletes, like how, how much work is put into it, right? So if I'm taking five grams a day, four times a day, how long does it really take me to take five grams? So I put in a shaker cup and I drink it, what, like 30 seconds, right? There's not a lot of work put into it compared to the amount of training you have to do to see that type of adaptation. And even now, creatine monohydrate is very cheap. It used to be quite expensive. So I don't think you can use the excuse of cost as much of an issue. So for how much effort you put into it, and the risk of it, I mean, there's very good data to show creatine is extremely safe. We have more data on that than any other, like, sports nutrition supplement, like, ever. So there isn't really much of any downside. And he kind of dispelled a lot of those myths on that. To that point, too, it's probably worth asking. Sometimes people will say, what brand is best? And I think creatine has become so ubiquitous. As long as it's creatine monohydrate, I buy an off-brand. Because let's face it, it's one of those things where, if, especially if you load over five days, you're going to gain water weight. You're going to feel more swole. <laughs> you know, yeah. You're going to change the number on the scale a couple of pounds. But the point is, I don't really worry about it too much because it's so ubiquitous. It's not like you have to buy the absolute most premium kind 
just be, I mean, back in the early 90s when we were dabbling with creatine research uh, in the Kent State Lab, we used to have to buy it from like Sigma Chemical or Fisher Psy and all, some of these groups. That, I mean, it wasn't even for human use really yeah, at the time. Chems. Yeah, yeah, and even now, there's only like really two major manufacturers of creatine that I know of. Like almost all of it's going to come from probably one of those two sources. So as long as they're not being complete dopes when they're putting it <laughs> in containers, you're probably going to be okay. And what we see across the market is a uh, you know price of creatine is pretty standard now you don't see a huge difference in it and you don't need any other bells and whistles on it just get old school boring creatine monohydrate yeah okay uh, let's let's march through was that pretty much it that was day one yep um other uh, highlights and tidbits. Okay, we're gonna we'll run through some lectures here. Maybe we'll comment a little bit about any posters that really jumped out or some expo stuff, miscellaneous stuff. But there were a few more. Uh, obviously, there was talks. I mean, this conference went on for uh, three or four days. So, uh, what else do you got? Uh, Dr. Mike Robertson did a really great talk. Again, I love his stuff. He's definitely more on the molecular side, which is not necessarily my wheelhouse per se. Um, but looking at the time effect of satellite cells and kind of myonuclear domain, right? So how much fiber there is per nucleus, which is kind of a way of potentially looking at muscle hypertrophy changes. And they're also now looking at specific types of RNA to get an idea is the ribosome content increasing in the muscle. Right, so listeners probably know ribosomes are where the proteins themselves are actually being made. So if you make the ribosome content bigger, you're going to be making more muscular proteins. So they looked at some studies between low versus high responders. Some early data says that you know maybe it's ribosome content that might make the difference of it. Uh, they did something pretty cool looking at multiple measures to come up with what they call the composite hypertrophy score. So looking at fiber type all the way up to specific uh, DEXA scans with that. Uh, one of the things he said that jumped out, he had a study that was published in Pure J 2018 that showed that maybe mitochondrial density may be a factor in those who were low responders. Uh, he didn't go into too much of mechanisms or anything else on that. But one thing I've noticed in training people is I have people do... Uh, aerobic block we're really working on aerobic performance and a little bit of lifting and people who seem to be stuck at a plateau and i always thought that it's because the recovery is an aerobic based type thing so maybe they just can't recover from as much lifting therefore they can't accumulate as much volume in the gym but the basis for that there wasn't much literature uh, so we had some very cool data showing that maybe there is something to that you know, maybe if you're a very low responder, maybe you need to do something to increase your aerobic capacity or mitochondrial density that may facilitate your ability to handle higher volumes in training and get a better response from it. It That's one of the things that seems like a, a balancing act to me, right? Because sure. we've talked about combined cross-training type stuff can, might hamper your muscular gains. But if you have no aerobic base at all, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, if if muscle protein synthesis is energy costly right. and you've, you've got no mitochondria, maybe you should spend some time. I still don't know if I would do like hardcore exhaustive cross training, but spend a time and focus on building some mitochondria, get your aerobic base. 
then do a hypertrophy cycle, right? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I found. So I'll have people do kind of classic cardio, you know, rower versus climber, bike, running, probably not swimming unless they're extremely advanced in swimming. You know, start at just 20 minutes. I like low to moderate intensity fasted first thing in the morning. So it's also not going to interfere with their weight training the next day. And I just start maybe get up to 20, 30, 40 minutes with some people, just old school kind of progression with that. I usually run that for four to eight weeks. Uh, my buddy uh, Luke Lehman, who runs Muscle Nerds, has done that quite a bit, and he's seen some pretty good results with that also. So, Okay. Um Anything else from that talk or, or moving on? Uh, moving on. Hector Lopez did one on the CBD, kind of the endocannabinoid system. And it was good. I mean, I liked it, but it was super in-depth, very heavy on the molecular side. Um, so the endocannabinoid system is something that works to regulate uh, eating, sleep, uh, what they call forgetfulness in a good way, relaxation, protection, uh, some very interesting stuff with everything from reward, reduction in pain, body temperature, blood pressure, appetite, sleep. So when people make kind of claims on CBD, I've done a few talks on this this past year. It's hard because we don't have a lot of direct data on CBD. So cannabidiol, the thing that's being sold as a supplement to interact with this system. But the endocannabinoid system itself is so persuasive or pervasive, I guess you should say, in tons of physiologic systems that I can't just, like we were talking about after the talk, I can't just say, oh, all this CBD and things interact with endocannabinoid systems. Ah, oh, it's all crap. Don't worry about it. Because it does regulate so much of our physiology that we don't even quite understand yet, there is a physio potential for it to be influenced. Um, but what's interesting with the even cannabinoids, he said that, uh, CBD and THC, so delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the one that makes you feel kind of spacey or stoned if you're using cannabis, those are really the only two that kind of interact on the CB1 and CB2 direct mechanisms. The other cannabinoids don't seem to bind directly in kind of what we think of a ligand-mediated response. Um, and that's what makes, even I've spent last three years reading some of that research, and Holy crap, is it confusing as hell, right? Because we think that uh, one of the quotes I had in a paper was, you think, oh, okay, endocannabinoid system in the body. We've got a CB1 receptor, a CB2. We find out there's more receptors beyond that. Oh, cannabis, right? It has these compounds in it. They must only react with the CB1 and the CB2 receptor. And we find out that CBD and THC do but the complexity of how they interact on those receptors is pretty complex. And it, the other compounds may or may not interact in a direct fashion. One of the things that I was, because this was very educational for me. I haven't looked much into this yeah. like you have, but the, the, it sounded like CBD oil could almost desensitize you to THC in a sense. Like if you were on CBD oil because it affects the CB1 receptor, I think you'd get less stoned if you smoked pot. Is, is that fair? Yeah, so that's been kind of the claim for quite a while. And there's some early mechanistic data that does support that. There's a couple early studies that did support that. There's a couple recent studies, uh, one of them I think from Scandinavia, showed that that is actually not true in terms of psychomotor ability. 
my guess is it probably, which uh, Hector pointed out too, is that there's different SNPs. So how you process THC, how you process CBD is different. Uh, the effects that they have on what are you actually measuring, right? So I think it might possibly help, but I'm not as convinced that it's as big a effect as what's probably claimed by crazy gurus online. <laughs> you know, one of the other things I came away from that, I, although um, this whole internal, or I hate the word natural, but natural internal uh, cannabinoid system, uh, a lot of things, as you pointed out, are interconnected with it. Yeah. And of all these different phytochemicals that are in the marijuana plant, the different species, and I don't really understand that that much, and I, I don't really care to necessarily, except that I came away from that thinking there's so many different interactions between the different um, uh, cannabinoids and how they affect each other's receptor sensitivity or their their breakdown or their synthesis or because, again, when we talk about you have a natural system in place, this is a well-conserved, right, uh, eons-old kind of system that everybody has, but I kind of thought that there's so much interaction, so much interplay between these different plant chemicals all related, especially when you draw in stuff like how hormones or um, uh, dietary fat metabolism, other things interact. I would – this is a salty, you know, old Dr. Lowry talking, but <laughs> when you go see this stuff on the market, a lot of this stuff, it's still – early phase and there's a lot of opportunity and we've seen this over the decades i mean we both have that if there's this much interaction you can make something that is logical seem like it's guaranteed physiological but it 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 may not be so it's almost an opportunity for gurus and scam artists to con you and really convince you with some pretty convincing to your point like molecular arguments when we don't really know about the actual clinical relevancy of that. But there's one other thing I wanted to touch on, and it may be in your notes here, but is the concept of the entourage. Cause that's yeah. what, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like the whole herb versus the standardized extract in a sense. Yeah. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So the entourage effect is, I can't remember the guy who coined it. Someone can write it in, but there's all these other compounds in the cannabis plant. So if you look at, the number of compounds that have been identified, like the last estimate is like over a thousand. Uh, the number of cannabinoids itself, I think I've read stuff of 113, but it's well over 100. CBD, THC being the main ones, but there's CBG, CBN, blah, 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 bunch of other different ones. And now you add uh, terpenes, which are a whole nother class of compounds that are in there. Like when you smell cannabis, the smell that you get is primarily from the terpene content. And the theory with the entourage effect is that these other compounds that come along are serving also in uh, physiologic reactions also. My bias at this point, which is very preliminary in the research, I would look for a CBD extract that is a whole uh, hemp or cannabis plant. So you would get some of those other compounds with it and then make sure it's standardized for CBD. Uh, There is probably THC in most of those preparations because by law you can have up to 0.3% THC in uh, hemp or CBD products. In terms of an actual milligram amount, that's incredibly small. You're not going to feel it. 
But if you are super worried about a drug test and things of that nature, there is a very small amount of THC in there. Most companies, you can get a preparation that has like little to no THC in it. But I would call and ask them what is their parts per million or parts per billion that they test THC to. Because, you know, if you get crazy, there is a very, 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 very tiny amount in there. And there's always going to be a tiny amount in there. But they should be able to tell you what that amount actually is. All right. Two questions for you, like bottom line kinds of things. One, legality. Yeah. Is CBD oil – this sounds very naive. Yeah. I, I'm not into this. Um, I Maybe in the future. I don't know. Yeah. But in all states, can you get CBD oil? It, what's the deal with like interstate trade? And is everybody who's listening to this, at least the state side, can they get this and not worry about being busted somehow? Yeah, so right now, as of the Farm Act, which says that, hey, if you have hemp, right? So hemp is basically a cannabis plant that has very, very low levels of THC. If it is 0.3% THC or less in the raw material, it is legally considered as hemp. If it's considered as hemp, it is regulated under the Department of Agriculture, not the DEA, not the FDA. Therefore, if that's true, it makes CBD oil, as long as you're at 0.3% and below, legal in all 50 states. Now, it's a little weird thing because the FDA does have some weird patents on CBD. They have approved a drug called Epidiolex for the use in epilepsy, which literally is CBD at a high dose. So it's a gray area the fda still will not allow claims to be made because it's sold as a supplement so are there a lot of shady companies that are violating that absolutely there's a couple published uh literature now showing that the amount of thc was not spec on the label meaning it was high in some cases so again you want to make sure you know what you're dealing with buy from a reputable manufacturer Personally, I would call them and ask them questions about their testing, things of that nature. And then I also look to see how long have they been selling CBD. In my opinion, if it's been a few months, that makes me incredibly nervous. If they've been doing it for a longer period of time, they have multiple products, probably going to be a little bit better, but obviously not a guarantee. Okay, now something else that you said in a conversation afterwards, and that's why it's fun to do it like on a yeah, podcast, yeah. right? Because then it's not just the podium, but it's the hallway conversations. Yeah. But you talked about the methods of consumption. So when people talk about smoking pot, like you're burning weed yeah. <laughs> versus making it an oil and swallowing it and asking your intestines to absorb it. Can you speak to that at all? Like I'm these things, I, I would think, affect what ends up in your bloodstream or whatever. Yeah, they make a massive difference, right? So in some states, cannabis and marijuana is legal. And you have to look then at what is the strain content of CBD and THC, because they should have analytical chemistry testing to tell you what that is. The next question is, like, you could sit down to, like, a huge thing of cannabis leaves and eat it like a friggin' rabbit, go crazy. Nothing will happen to you, because that compound is actually not THC has to go through something called decarboxylation or decarb, and you have to apply uh, temperature or heat to change the compounds. So if I'm doing like the old school thing where I'm just gonna roll it into a joint, I light it on fire, the heat at that point automatically decarboxylates it into THC, which is then inhaled or CBD that's inhaled. 
If you're using something like a vaporizer and you're putting like the raw cannabis into it, now I could play around with the vaporization temperature. If I want some of the properties of the terpenes, I'll have a lower vaporization temperature that'll also minimize the THC content at that point. The downside is if you want high amounts of CBD, the boiling point of CBD and THC are almost the same. So you can't differentiate it out via different vaporization temperature. That doesn't surprise me much. When I saw the chemical structures of CBD versus similar. almost identical, there's like a hydroxyl group, one tiny alcohol group different on the whole big molecule. Yeah, so it makes a difference. And then if you get into vaporizing oil, you have to check to see, okay, how do they manufacture it? Do they even put some of the terpenes back in it? What's the concentration? So it gets to be kind of confusing, especially when you're reading the research. Uh, last thing too, if you're consuming an edible, that, that THC that's in there, which they've decarboxylated to create THC from the cannabis marijuana plant, that is a different drug metabolized by the liver. First thing that happens on first pass metabolism by the liver, it's converted to 11-hydroxy-THC. And that actually acts as almost an completely different drug so if you're using an edible let's say for thc versus uh, vaporization of thc you actually have the end compounds are different in addition to the method of delivery the pharmacokinetics so when you reach a peak blood level so edibles the peak blood level could be 60 to 90 minutes well, there's some studies saying it could be as long as two, three, maybe even in some rare individuals, four hours. So it gets to be kind of messy pretty fast. All right, so let's let's wrap this up a little bit for people who are if they're like, I, you guys are talking about pot. I don't. I'm not in. <laughs> but uh, why would listeners be interested in CBD oil or other kinds of marijuana? For me, it's, it seems like the, the no-brainers are alp- appetite stimulus, yep. stress reduction, and recovery. Is that fair? Yeah, I would agree with that. There's some data on uh, sleep pathologies. CBD may help. Now, the doses that are used in a lot of CBD research is very high. 150 to 300 milligrams is a pretty common dose in a lot of that research. Common dose sold in supplements right now in most, I'd say, is uh, 5 milligrams to 10, maybe 15 milligrams. So you want to make sure that you look at the dose of which it's standardized to. Um, But there is some data that it may help with that. There's some data that may help with anxiety. So I did a study and said, hey, what can we do to produce massive amounts of anxiety in people? Ah, we'll have them do public speaking. And they compared it to some pretty hardcore drugs. And a dose of 300 milligrams of CBD was comparable to some other drugs for the acute effect of reducing anxiety. So there is some good mechanisms. There is some early preliminary data that it may be helpful for lifters possibly with sleep maybe to reduce some anxiety and stress things of that nature chronic pain maybe possibly chronic pain there's very good animal data on that actually um so i tell people if you want to try it make sure you get a reputable you know dosage make sure you know the manufacturer and just start with probably a low dose and then slowly work your way up and have some type of outcome that you're going to measure 
whether that's anxiety or you're going to try to use an aura ring to measure sleep or some type of really just rough protocol so you know what you're kind of trying to measure ahead of time. And again, it's an N of one, but at least gives you some framework to play with. Well, and you mentioned uh, SNPs earlier, and for people who aren't familiar, we're talking about single nucleotide polymorphisms, basically genetic things that make you you yeah. and how people respond differently. Let me just clarify one thing, though, before we move on is, is CBD oil going to make me hungry? Probably not. Like most of that is modified via the THC molecule. CBD doesn't appear to, at least from what I've seen, have much of an effect upon uh, appetite per se, either pro or negative. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, any other talks here? You have a lot of notes. We're already at the 43-minute point yeah. here. So the other talk, uh, Dr. Andy Gelpin talked about six lessons he's learned from coaching uh, athletes, and it was really good. I liked that it was, uh, you know, for some of the practitioners in the audience, I think it was a more basic message, which isn't a knock. I think it's always good to hear those things again. But I liked that it was driven by a lot of story, and for people who are more on the research side you know how do you translate some of that i even wrote down a couple of good you know tips to use with athletes so i think especially in the information age now we all think that oh i know this study and that study so the athlete has to do this and we tend to forget context and we tend to forget a lot of other things that kind of go into the art of of coaching uh dr john mike did a good talk on eccentric exercise which was good uh, some of the research on it, and then also some of the practical applications, which I like to see. Obviously, I like research, but I also like the way to put it into your practice. So one of the basic ones he had was you could do a 2-1 method. So if I'm doing uh, leg curls on a machine, I'll use two legs to raise it, and then I'll only use maybe one leg to lower it. I actually do that quite a bit. Oh, I, yeah. I, I like the idea that when he was talking about eccentric, my my usual bias is super maximal, like 120% with a partner or something and just lowering yeah. huge weights. Yeah, but when he was talking about like deceleration, you know, so imagine, for example, everybody just trying to think of an example, running down a hill and making yourself slow down. You have to be able to absorb energy and force like that but he had a lot of really good ideas again the, the two for one he i think he was talking about like triceps push down same thing push down with both arms you know do the eccentric or the you know the back up phase with just a single arm he had a lot of i, I think uh well thought out ways to do eccentric contractions yeah and one thing i've done with lifters too especially strongman is and again this is a progression i'm not saying run out and do this right away is do a chin-up, so hold at the top, and then see if you can drop and sort of, quote, catch yourself about halfway down, right? So what are you doing? You're having speed, but then you have a huge breaking, a huge eccentric load. And part of my reason for doing that is maybe it'll reduce injury to the biceps and the tendons and things of that nature. Obviously, don't start there, but as uh, something to work up to with the progression, things of that nature where it's more of a controlled manner in the gym, maybe you can get a little bit better adaptation. So when you go to, you know, tire flips and some other stuff like that, maybe you have a little bit higher level of protection for that. I think the take-home message for a lot of our listeners with eccentric stuff is, uh, and by the way, 
eccentric, saying it that way, versus eccentric. I was always taught that eccentric isn't a word. I had this salty old professor. <laughs> and since then, I really come to understand it's it's sort of regional. Like if you yeah, say yeah. eccentric, it's often said that way in a lot of parts of the country. So tomato, tomato. Um, but for our listeners, I mean, I've always been a huge fan of, of negatives, right, quote, unquote, for hypertrophy because of the satellite cell activation and all that stuff. It just seems like it's – I mean, if you're really actually after mass and you're not like a specific skilled sport athlete, I can't imagine a program that didn't have at least periods of the year where you're emphasizing the eccentric. Yeah, that's kind of like Cal Dietz is very familiar for having triphasic training. Obviously, I'm good friends with him at the University of Minnesota. Where you basically take like a two-week period where you're doing eccentric type work, take a maybe two-week period where you're working on that brief pause, that isometric between eccentric and concentric, then maybe one to two weeks working on concentric, right? So what he noticed with his athletes for increasing rate of force development, it was limited by their ability to actually go down fast in the squat stop that load as short a time period as it can, reduce amortization, and then increase in a concentric way. So we found that if they were not able to have that eccentric strength, their concentric strength was actually less, especially for a rate of force development. So if you're training athletes, you probably, yeah, you want them to get to move load, especially if they're weaker. But at some point, if they're squatting, say, 400, and you can do that at a much faster rate, that's probably going to transfer to better sport performance. You know, and another thing that I know John did his dissertation with, um, essentially, is the duration. Like, how long do you prolong the negative? So two, four, or six seconds basically is the short answer of it. I think if you go beyond six, it becomes so unlike most other events that you would be asking yourself – the specificity just is so far in left field that it's probably not as transferable. So I, I think those are your sort of options, people, probably two, four, or six seconds. And John gave some s- different nuances of how that might be done. But I think day in, day out, practical application, that's a reasonable range. Yeah. And the only other last one I had was uh, Bill Llewellyn gave an interesting talk on arachidonic acid. And it presented kind of the history of when he introduced it into the supplement field in the early 2000s and just kind of the accumulating research on it now. So I thought that was was good. I mean, it's definitely something I made a note to go back and, you know, look at a lot more of the research on that, too. But yeah, some interesting data. Again, are you seeing massive increases in lean body mass? No. But, you know, you presented some statistically significant uh, changes. Dosage they used in most of the studies was around 1,500 milligrams. That was of actual arachidonic acid itself, not the oil carrier or anything else that was in there. Um, so I made a note to go back and you know kind of read some more of that research because I was uh, not updated on a lot of that literature as of now. All right, I'll tell you what. I think we're going to call it there. We can catch up with Phil next week. I know he's probably going to have some cool things to talk about, the the Jim Wendler NOV meet and all that sort of stuff. Uh, We're just too many events happening simultaneously or in short progression here. So um, we'll probably catch up with everybody next week. Maybe we'll even, you know, start with some of the news section and talk about the expo or some of the people we met or cool things or, or whatever. Yeah, awesome. Thank you very much. See you next time.
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.